0: Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. Today is going to be part two of our discussion on popular diets and common misconceptions in nutrition. Now, for today's episode, I am going to be the only host, uh, which leads me to a bit of an update. So as I mentioned in our most recent episode, the SBS podcast co-host Union was on strike because they wanted family contact to be reinstated despite the obvious and direct threat to show quality and show focus. Uh, I did make an altruistic and generous concession, uh, and I granted that request, and it came with only a modest pay reduction in order to offset some of the damages that the podcast would incur as we made that change. So I granted that policy change, uh, and unfortunately... With some folks, if you give an inch, they ask for a mile, and and that's where we find ourselves currently with the union. Uh, So after spending Christmas time with their families during the strike, uh, apparently they decided that was something that they want moving forward. So they have requested, in addition to their previous request, that they want Christmas Day off in the future. Uh, Now that, to me, is is kind of a line in the sand uh, that... That would be fully incompatible with our production schedule. I don't want to get too into the details about the -the behind-the-scenes efforts here. Um, But this strike, which, I mean, I've got lawyers contacting me continuously saying it's totally unfair, totally illegal, uh, but this strike continues. And and so for that reason, I am the only host for today's show. Now, we're going to get into part two of this discussion, but before I do that, I want to remind everyone that if you like the show and you would like to support it, uh, and support us in this nasty battle with the union, uh, there are many ways you could do that. You could like, rate, or subscribe wherever you get the podcast. You could sign up for our email newsletter by going to strongerbyscience.com newsletter. We send out an email every Wednesday with a really nice, concise, practical research update. We call it the Research Spotlights. Uh, we think you'll like them very, very much if you sign up. Uh, If you're looking for one-on-one virtual coaching, that is a service we offer at Stronger by Science. You can learn more about our coaching services and our very talented team of coaches by going to strongerbyscience.com slash coaching. If you want a discount on very reasonably priced supplements, you could go to BulkSupplements.com and use our discount code. It is SBSPOD or S-B-S-P-O-D, and that will get you a 5% discount at BulkSupplements.com. Uh, You could check out the Mass Research Review. That's a monthly research review that Greg and I publish along with Dr. Eric Helms and Dr. Mike Zordos, keeping you up to date with the newest research in exercise and nutrition. And then finally, you could check out Macrofactor. That is the diet app that Greg and I co-developed along with a very, very talented team of colleagues. It does have a free trial, so you can check it out, take it for a spin before you make any kind of financial commitment. All right, now... Let's move on to the nutrition content for today's episode. Just like last week, going to run through some popular diets, and while I'm doing it, talk about some common misconceptions that are kind of related to some of these diets. For each of these, I'm going to try to discuss some pros and cons, do it in a pretty fair way. I don't want this to be the type of like vitriolic, myth-busting episode where I'm just really condescending the whole time. <laughs> it doesn't make me feel happy, doesn't make listeners feel happy. So I'm going to try to be fair um, and just really neutral about how I discuss these diets and some of these misconceptions. Going to try to highlight some positives uh, and then also highlight some negatives as well. Before I get into that, just like last week, I want to provide a little refresher just to kind of um, kind of anchor us to some key nutritional concepts. So when I talk about a health promoting dietary pattern, I'm talking about particular elements of a dietary pattern. Uh, particular criteria, you could say, that based on the best available evidence seem to be compatible with really positive outcomes in terms of health and wellness and longevity. So I usually refer to two different tables of criteria that when combined, I think provide a really nice overview of what a generally health compatible dietary pattern looks like. So Table 1 uh, is the healthy diet indicator criteria from 2015. It basically advocates for eating a bunch of fruits and vegetables, keeping fat to no more than 30% of total energy, keeping saturated fat to no more than 10% of total energy, keeping polyunsaturated fat between 6 and 11% of total energy, keeping free or added sugars to less than 10% of total energy, Getting at least 25 grams of fiber per day and getting at least 3.5 grams of potassium per day. Now, we can combine that with some additional elements from the 2020 version of the healthy diet indicator criteria. That would involve, uh, in 2020, they kind of updated and say explicitly try to get plenty of beans and legumes into your diet, try to get nuts and seeds into your diet, try to get some whole grains into your diet. Try to limit dietary so dietary sodium to less than two grams a day. Try to limit processed meat as much as you can, and just try to have a uh, a bit of a just try to practice moderation when it comes to unprocessed red meat specifically. Um, now there are some elements that, as we're going to talk about, they're not hard rules, right? So I'm going to talk about a dietary pattern, specifically the Mediterranean diet that in many cases is going to go above 30% of total energy from fat. And that's okay. You know, we don't need to check every single box to feel good about the dietary pattern that we are implementing. But when possible, we'd like to, to check at least several of these boxes when we're reviewing our diet. Another one is dietary sodium. Um, for most folks who are sedentary and live in pretty climate-controlled conditions, it, it would be pretty advisable to keep sodium to no more than you know two, maybe three grams a day. But there are plenty of folks who do a lot of exercise in the heat. They're sweating like crazy and they have considerable sodium losses. And so they, they, do, they do very well on, on daily sodium intakes well above two grams. So these are guidelines. They are not rigid rules. So that's our starting point that kind of helps us get our bearings when we are evaluating a variety of different diets and really closely looking at whether or not they are uh really good health compatible dietary patterns, so in last week's episode or in the in the previous episode, we talked a lot about different types of low carb diets. Um, you know, we talked about just general low carb diets. We talked about the zone diet, the Atkins diet, the South Beach diet, ketogenic diets, um, the carnivore diet. There's kind of a general theme that a lot of those diets tended to be relatively uh, relatively low in carbohydrate. And in this episode, I've kind of cr- uh, grouped together some dietary patterns that more fall on the low-fat side and also kind of tend to fall more on the plant-based side. So last week, a lot of lower-carb, higher-fat diets with a lot of animal products. This week, a lot of low-fat, higher-carb diets with a lot of plant products. Uh, So there's some logic to the way these are grouped together. But starting out, I just want to talk about low-fat diets more generally. So sometimes you will see uh, content creators, medical professionals who say, hey, go on a low-fat diet, and they rarely uh, elaborate too far beyond that. So when someone says a low-fat diet, um, if you're getting less than 30% of your calories from fat, that is often considered a low-fat diet. And if you're getting less than 20% of your calories from fat, that is considered, in most cases, a very low-fat diet. Now, when we talk about what happens when you adopt this type of dietary pattern, one of the things to consider is the impact on testosterone and other sex hormone levels. So there are uh, meta-analyses indicating that if you adopt a really restrictive, low-calorie, very low-fat diet... It's probably not going to be optimal for supporting high levels of testosterone and other sex hormones. that there is a bit of an inhibitory effect where circulating levels of those hormones often does go down in response to a pretty aggressive fat restriction. So we might start to see that stuff. you know, of course, the total energy content of your diet matters a lot, but even going down into the, you know, 25, 20, 15% of energy range, we'll start to see some of those effects on uh, sex hormone levels. Now, I don't want to overstate the importance of those, of those effects. Um, you know, sometimes people will see this little, you know, totally physiologically irrelevant, negligible change in testosterone, and they'll really panic and say, how am I going to build muscle with this drop in testosterone? And in reality, you know, testosterone, it takes pretty big changes in testosterone before you start to see major effects on things like, libido sexual function uh hypertrophy and strength gains body composition more broadly it takes pretty big changes in testosterone to really move the needle when it comes to practical outcomes but nonetheless a lot of people say hey i'd like to support my testosterone levels to the best of my ability and it is worth noting that when you start to get into these lower fat diet ranges uh there there could be an impact on testosterone Now, when we start talking about very low-fat diets, we run into a different set of considerations in terms of how low would be too low. Uh, So when we get really low with dietary fat, we might start to have some concerns about our ability to absorb fat-soluble vitamins. We might have uh, some concerns about whether or not we're getting enough uh, essential fatty acids into the diet. And they are essential because our body cannot make them. That means we literally must get them from our diet. So uh, if we are not getting adequate essential fatty acid intake for extended periods of time, that can lead to deleterious uh, side effects pertaining to our health. Uh, and then a one of the factors that you'll see, um, you know, I've, I've looked into some papers in the more medically oriented literature where they put people on very restrictive diets so it will be like an 800 calorie per day diet using only meal replacement beverages and one of the questions that comes up in this literature is if we're doing these really extreme interventions where it's you know we are giving the participants their entire diet and it's only 800 calories per day How much fat do we necessarily need to put into those uh, meal replacement beverages that are essentially making up their entire diet? And one of the things that they look at is acutely, uh, over relatively short timescales, what is kind of the rate-limiting side effect? What what is the key side effect that we really need to worry about when it comes to our minimum fat uh, contribution in these beverages? And one of the things that comes up pretty frequently in some of these shorter-term interventions is gallbladder issues. You want to make sure that fat intake in these really extreme interventions is high enough to avoid any acute gallbladder issues. And usually, it doesn't take a lot of fat to avoid that in the short term. You know, you'll see some of these papers saying, as long as we're giving these uh, study participants, uh, you know, maybe 10 grams a day of fat... We seem to be able to stave off some of these gallbladder-related side effects in the acute sense. Now, I would never in my right mind tell someone that they should eat 10 grams of fat a day. That's From my perspective, very, very low, way too low to consider a sustainable long-term dietary solution or dietary pattern. So when I look at a lower limit for somebody's fat intake, what I do is I base it on their height. So I encourage people to take your height in centimeters subtract 150 divide the result by two and add 30 and that's going to give you your daily minimum uh, fat kind of it's your lower threshold basically for your daily fat intake you should always be at that number or higher Um, there might be a day or two throughout the week where you go lower than that but your average daily intake for the week should certainly be higher than this lower limit so for example let's say that you're 180 centimeters tall you would do 180 minus 150, that gives you 30. Divide that by two, which gives you 15. Add 30, and now you've got a lower limit of 45 grams per day of fat. So that is my my kind of easy little heuristic for calculating a lower fat threshold. And you know what I'm trying to do there is make sure people aren't going so low that we're, you know, that we have serious concerns about. Fat soluble vitamin absorption, essential fatty acid intake, gallbladder issues, things like that. If you're consistently at that level, you might notice some some fluctuations in sex hormone levels. But eh, I'm hopeful that you probably won't notice large changes with, with that level of fat intake. Uh, but ultimately, it depends on the individual situation. So this is just a basic heuristic. This is not uh, this is not medical advice. Uh, and I'll I'll be completely candid when when people ask me where those numbers exactly come from, it is figuring out, uh, <laughs> you know, com- combining all this literature. Like if you were to say, go find me in the literature the lowest uh, feasible fat intake that could be recommended, like I said, you'd probably say, I guess like 10, 11 grams a day, uh, you know, based on these short-term interventions. But what I try to do with this heuristic is combine studies that look at not just, you know, acute gallbladder issues, but also, you know, how do we do our best to make sure that we're not tanking sex hormone levels or testosterone levels and things like that? So there there it there's not some perfect study that leads you to this exact calculation, uh, but that's kind of a synthesis of my interpretation of the literature. Again, making sure that we're definitely avoiding those critical short-term considerations in terms of side effects, but also seeing... How do we put together a heuristic that in most cases is going to avoid, you know, physiologically meaningful drops in sex hormone levels? But ultimately, like I said, if you're hitting that bare minimum for fat intake, but you're on a super low calorie diet, there's not much we're going to be able to do in terms of maintaining baseline levels of those sex hormone levels. At a certain point, when you start to restrict energy really aggressively, those things are going to move around a little bit and not always in the direction that we want. So when it comes to, to low-fat diets, like I said, there are some considerations where you want to say, okay, we definitely don't want to go too low. But broadly speaking, my, per, my perspective on low-fat diets is very similar to my perspective on low-carb diets. There are some very sensible, very uh, sustainable ways to adopt a low-fat diet, and it, it presents an opportunity to reduce uh, calorie intake for people who are interested in losing fat or if they're noticing some weight gain and they simply want to get out ahead of that and prevent further weight gain you know if you're in a dietary position where you want to reduce your calorie intake for one of those reasons uh, i think whether you're doing it from a low carb diet or a low fat diet both are very very suitable options for reducing calorie intake and when we look at the meta-analyses Comparing weight loss or body composition effects with low-fat versus low-carb diets, they seem to be very equivalent. It really just comes down to, are you eating enough protein to sustain your fat-free mass or your lean body mass? And at that point, how low are your calories getting? That, that's really what's going to be dictating body composition changes in a broad sense. So if you prefer a low-fat diet, that's great. If you prefer a low-carb diet, that's great. The biggest thing is you don't want to adopt a super restrictive pattern that's incompatible with your preferences. Now, just like, you know, in the last episode we talked about some low carb diets and I said low carb diets are a great option, but there are certain types of low carb diets that get really restrictive. They have some of these overly restrictive rules that are a little bit arbitrary and so we don't want to just be piling up rules and guidelines that are hard to follow for no reason so low carb diets are great but that doesn't mean that every low carb diet is great and i feel the same way about low fat diets low fat diets are an excellent totally viable option for people who want to reduce their caloric intake Um, but there are certain types of low fat diets That just have unnecessarily restrictive rules and we want to avoid arbitrary guidelines that make our life harder without actually giving us much in return um now there is a myth uh that that is somewhat related to low-fat diets Um, and usually it's a myth that is uh, used to criticize low-fat diets nowadays as low-carb, high-fat diets become more and more popular. We're seeing more people doing, uh, you know, ketogenic diets, carnivore diets, things like that. And it's not that they're super prevalent necessarily, uh, you know, when we look at the population level, but the chatter online is getting very, very, um, is definitely leaning in that direction where a lot of folks are very adamant about ketogenic diets, carnivore diets, and other diets that are just generally high in total fat, and typically in saturated fat as well. And so the myth here is that a lot of people nowadays are kind of turning nutritional science on its head. They're rejecting a lot of the uh, scientific consensus, and they're saying, actually, saturated fat is basically a superfood. You should be eating really, really, really fatty red meat as the base of your diet, and everything you thought you know about low-fat diets being good for cardiovascular health that stuff's all fake. Uh, and so once again, just like in last week's episode or in the previous episode, I want to refer people to a three-part article series by Dr. Alan Flanagan over at Sigma Nutrition. It does a very, very good job of explaining the scientific consensus of the relationships between dietary patterns, certain nutrient intakes, blood lipid effects, and then ultimately Uh, long-term outcomes pertaining to cardiovascular health Uh, so this idea that saturated fat was wrongly demonized and it doesn't affect blood lipids and blood lipids don't affect heart disease risk um, there's a lot of either disinformation or misinformation going around right now being used to attack and critique low-fat diets Uh, and so I don't want to be vitriolic and assume that people making those arguments are doing it with bad intent. Um, I, To the extent possible, I, I really do try to force myself to assume the best and, and really practice uh, the, the concept of being charitable with my assumptions and just assuming people that are putting out this content that glorifies high intake of fatty red meat and really demonizes low-fat diets... I assume the people making that content do have the best of intentions and simply uh, see the literature differently than I do, but they, they also see it differently than the vast majority of people who are very highly trained in nutritional science, and those types of claims are really poorly supported by the evidence. So if you want to get an idea of the scientific consensus that is in line with the best available evidence... I very much recommend that three-part series by Dr. Flanagan. Now I want to get into uh, some specific types of diets that you might see on the low-fat side of things. Um, So one would be the Ornish diet. So this is a a very popular low-fat diet uh, developed by Dr. Dean Ornish. It is a lacto-ovo-vegetarian diet and so it it includes uh some non-fat dairy products it includes some egg whites in moderation um all meat fish poultry uh that stuff is all off the table uh, when it comes to uh, the ornish diet Uh, any kind of fatty dairy products uh, would be off the table Uh, nuts seeds avocados olives cooking oils i mean pretty much anything with a significant amount of fat in it is is pretty much off the table so the idea with the ornish diet is that it's very very low in fat i I think typically it's around 10 percent of fat coming uh or 10 percent of total calories coming from fat and so you might be wondering so what do you actually eat on this diet um it's largely centered around eating a lot of fruit legumes vegetables and whole grains um it does um to the best of my knowledge, the Ornish diet does advocate for the use of fish oil supplements for essential fatty acid purposes, getting in um, marine-based omega-3 fatty acids, um, and it is part of an overall program that is intended to um, reverse heart disease or reduce risk of heart disease, and so it includes elements. If you look at the whole kind of Ornish plan, it includes exercise, meditation, yoga, stress reduction techniques, and things like that. So my perspective is if you are on the ornish diet but one thing i do want to acknowledge i appreciate the fact that it includes other things you know instead of just saying let's look at you know certain nutrients it's saying well how are you managing stress are you physically active i think that's a good thing uh, in terms of being a comprehensive program so i do want to give credit for that I think overall, if someone said, Hey, I'm on the Ornish diet, I wouldn't immediately say, Wow, that is an absolutely catastrophic eating pattern. But I will say that the fats are lower than I would typically advocate for, uh, being only 10% of total calories. I usually like to stay somewhere between 20 to 35% of total calories coming from fat. So this does go below where i typically would think of fat being in a diet Um, those percentages that i just mentioned 20 to 35 percent of course it depends on the context you know whether calories in the diet are high or low there's a lot that goes into that but 10 percent fat is a a very low fat diet for sure and another thing to keep in mind is that this diet in my opinion is more restrictive than necessary for health related purposes so the idea that you should for example Uh, cut fish or poultry or avocados out of your diet entirely, um, to me it is difficult to argue that that is uh, an important restriction to apply for health purposes. Uh, From my read of the literature, having a a diet that contains fish, poultry, avocados, nuts, seeds, things like that, some of these um, foods that just have too much fat to, to really be incorporated in the Ornish diet at a high level, um, when I look at the literature pertaining to those those uh, food items and, and those uh, nutrients that they contain, I really don't see reason for concern, um, you know, and, and I'll, I'll be completely uh, candid. I, I eat a vegan diet, but that choice has very little to do with health or performance. It's, it's a completely extraneous set of uh, factors dictating that decision. I never looked at my diet and said, in order to be healthy, I need to stop eating chicken breast or stop eating salmon or stop eating, av- well, that I still eat avocado, but you get the idea. Um, the idea that you have to remove some of these things from the diet for health purposes just really doesn't, doesn't make a lot of sense to me if I'm being completely candid. So it's not that adhering to the Ornish diet would be absolutely catastrophic, generally speaking, but I do think the fat is lower than I would prefer. Uh, and i think there are some unnecessary restrictions in the diet that theoretically and practically would would threaten sustainability and feasibility i think when when you adopt a dietary pattern you only want to have rules and and guidelines that that truly do serve a functional purpose that that are that are not just beneficial but worth the cost of of implementing the the rule or the restriction or the guidelines so ornish diet it's okay, but but it's not really my preferred approach to dieting. Now, that does bring me to the concept of vegetarian and vegan diets. So I'll broadly sometimes refer to them as plant-based diets. Uh, sometimes I'll also use the term plant-forward diets, which is basically just a diet that might include some non, non-plant uh, food sources, but is generally very plant-heavy, you know. So... You might look at a, a very plant-forward diet as being something that has a little bit of poultry, a little bit of fish, but generally speaking, a lot of fruit, a lot of vegetables, a lot of whole grains, a lot of beans and legumes and things like that. So plant-based diets, to me, that that kind of is an umbrella term that includes vegetarian and vegan diets. Um, and I think it's a natural transition from the Ornish diet, um, you know, which, which does... Um, You know, the the Ornish diet is lacto-ovo-vegetarian, so it's a nice little transition into these kind of plant-based diets. So a vegetarian diet can take many forms. Like I said, it could be a a lacto-ovo-vegetarian diet like the Ornish diet, and that means that dairy products and egg products, lacto and ovo, dairy and egg, those are included into a vegetarian or plant-based eating plan if you're doing lacto-ovo-vegetarian Um, There are also people who take way different approaches. They might only include dairy, but not egg. They might only include egg, but not dairy. Some people are vegetarian plus fish, you know, so there's a lot of stuff that falls under this umbrella. And then there's also the term flexitarian, which to the best of my knowledge, basically describes someone who most of the time generally eats a plant-based diet, but sometimes, you know, they'll they'll have some animal products here and there uh, or some meat products here and there. So uh, vegetarian diets, um, you know, that's kind of the lay of the land. And then, of course, the most strict application of the vegetarian diet would be the vegan diet, which is pretty, you know, a pretty categorical rejection of, of any animal-based products. There are some foods that kind of fall into gray areas on vegan diets. Um, I've seen some very lively debates among vegans about whether or not you can eat things like oysters um, or snails or honey even. Uh, and, and so there are some foods where people kind of boil down into philosophical arguments about the more, more so the ethics of eating a particular food product. But generally speaking, vegan diets are pretty straightforward. If, you know, if it comes from an animal, you generally don't eat it. So when we look at these uh, vegetarian and plant-based diets in the literature, they generally do quite well uh, across a wide range of health outcomes. Uh, When you look at a variety of different um, mortality factors and chronic disease uh, outcomes, generally speaking, you know, plant-based diets either do just as well as omnivorous diets or in some cases a little better than omnivorous diets. Um, But that's not to say that vegetarian and vegan diets are not without shortcomings. So for example, if you're on a vegan diet, Uh, it's probably a good idea to lift weights. Now, it's probably a good idea to lift weights if you're not on a vegan diet, but the the relative importance may indeed increase when you're on a vegan diet. There was a recent study that I reviewed in the Mass Research Review uh, where they were looking at bone microarchitecture in omnivores versus vegans. And what they found was among people who did not lift weights... There were some potentially noteworthy differences where bone microarchitecture was less favorable in vegans, and and it's very possible that categorically cutting dairy out of the diet could be a key contributor to that observation. Uh, So for people who did not lift weights, bone structure and microarchitecture looked better in omnivores, meaning they had lower risk of know lower theoretical risk of fracture osteoporosis things of that nature Uh, however when they looked at people who lifted weights regularly the differences between omnivores and vegans uh, that gap closed very very quickly uh, very noticeably so it does appear that if you're on a vegan diet first of all you want to make sure you're still finding good bioavailable sources of things like calcium and vitamin d you want to make sure you're getting plenty of protein Some of these dietary factors that impact uh, bone health and bone architecture but you also want to make sure that you're lifting weights because lifting weights any kind of resistance training is going to provide a great stimulus for uh, strengthening bones and improving their micro architecture so that's one thing to keep in mind with a vegan diet Um, now vegan diets if you're on if you're consuming a low daily protein intake they might not be as suitable for supporting strength and hypertrophy. However, newer evidence within the last few years has started to indicate as long as your total protein intake is sufficient and you you don't have any massive gaps in terms of any specific essential amino acid, uh, vegan diets can support hypertrophy and muscle strength uh, and strength outcomes uh, just as well as omnivorous diets. So if we take a well-formulated vegan diet that has complementary protein sources and plenty of total protein—it does just as well, supporting gains in muscle and gains in strength when we compare it to a similar omnivorous diet. So, generally speaking, there are a couple extra things you want to think about if you're on a, a vegan diet. If you're on a vegetarian diet, if, if it's like ovo-lacto vegetarian, um, you know you've got plenty of uh, you know calcium, vitamin D, protein. You know, high quality protein sources in the mix. Um, You know, on that type of dietary pattern, from from my perspective, uh, from a kind of health perspective and performance perspective, an ovo-lacto-vegetarian diet is is from my perspective not really discernible from an omnivorous diet. Um, If you're getting a lot of your protein from eggs and dairy, uh, from a nutritional perspective, you're you're basically an omnivore, as far as I'm concerned. I'm sure a lot of some people will kind of push back against that. I'm sure. Um, But the idea is that there's not really a huge distinction there. It's only once you start getting into vegan diets where we say, hey, we really need to make sure we're taking a closer look at a couple key nutrients, make sure we're doing some things to support bone health and muscle health, things like that. Now, uh, there have been some concerns about links between vegetarian diets and depression. And so there are definitely uh, situations where you can look into the literature and say, I found an observational paper uh, linking vegan diets to poor mental health. Um, And then, of course, within those papers, there's going to be some, um, uh, you know, some discussion about, you know, is this a characteristic of people who opt into vegan diets? Um, You know, is there kind of a, a baseline difference there? Or is it possible that there is some nutrient shortcoming of a vegan diet that is actually leading to increased prevalence of depression? Uh, So there are, you can find papers that demonstrate that relationship and get into some of those discussions. Uh, But I'm going to link two papers in the show notes that, from my perspective, cast a lot of doubt on that assumed relationship uh, by which, you know, one might say that uh, the prevalence of uh, negative mental health outcomes is higher in vegans. Uh, There's a lot of um, contradictory evidence in that area. When you look at the most updated systematic reviews and meta-analyses, they really fail to support any strong link between vegan diets and depression. And, and beyond establishing a strong link, then you would have to then go further and say, is this link actually causative? You know, So did people develop depressive symptoms because they were on a vegan diet, or did people with elevated depressive symptoms opt into a vegan diet? So there's a lot to unpack there in terms of, first of all, establishing that this pattern exists, but then you have to go even further and do more work to establish that the pattern uh, represents a causative effect of the diet. We're nowhere near having evidence to really paint that entire picture. Uh, when I look at the literature, uh, I really struggle to see uh, significant reason for concern pertaining to mental health, health outcomes as a result of adopting a vegan or plant-based diet. Now, of course, with any health outcome, if you have concerns about it, you should discuss it with a medical professional. This is just kind of my two cents looking at the literature that's available. Now, there is a subtype of vegan diet um, that that sometimes gets popular, uh, kind of ebbs and flows in terms of popularity, waxes and wanes, I guess. Uh, It is the raw vegan diet. And so this is basically a vegan diet where you're eating uncooked whole foods, uh, really in, in a state that is as minimally processed as possible. So when you look at the plate of someone who's on a raw vegan diet, you're going to look at it and you're going to say, okay, there's some, you know, some uncooked, um, uh, broccoli on the plate, some uncooked, uh, peppers on the plate, uh, you know, just a bunch of raw vegetables and, you know, they'll, they'll put in some, you know, some seeds and nuts, maybe some sprouted beans or something. Uh, But generally speaking, the idea is to keep things in, uh, you know, as unprocessed and untouched a state as possible. Uh, So minimal, minimal processing, minimal cooking to the extent possible. Um, So that's the concept with a raw vegan diet. Um, Some people, I think, perceive that diet as saying, okay, I'm going to take a vegan diet, which seems to be linked to some positive health outcomes generally speaking and i'm going to take it a step further and make it even better and even healthier by taking this raw approach Uh, i think that there are some issues with that logic first of all um there seems to be an assumption that cooking these foods makes them less uh you know um less valuable from a nutritional perspective Uh, and that is not a broad statement that can really be supported um you know there are some instances where cooking a food can cause a loss or a degradation of certain nutrients, but there are also instances where cooking or processing a plant-based food can lead to better digestibility, uh, better bioavailability of nutrients, and it can reduce the impact of what we might call anti-nutrients. Uh, so in a in a episode a long time ago, I talked about anti-nutrients. And i basically said you know for most people you really don't have to be super worried about it there might be certain instances you know um you know so uh there might be instances pertaining to anemia where you might look at someone who is uh symptomatic for anemia you might look at their diet and say oh okay you know there there might be an issue here with with some of the bioavailability of the iron that you're consuming so we might need to rectify that but in most cases anti-nutrients as i said in a, a previous episode really aren't worth worrying about within the context of a typical dietary pattern because uh, we're usually not consuming enough of them for it to matter that much. And even if we are consuming them, uh, a lot of times we are, you know, if we're consuming foods that contain a lot of them, we're usually, just by, you know, typical dietary practices and cooking practices, we're usually processing and cooking these foods in a way that greatly diminishes the impact of whatever anti nutrients were initially present in the food. Now, if you adopt uh, a relatively atypical or uncommon dietary pattern, like a raw vegan diet, those things could potentially become more relevant uh, in terms of their their functional impact on the diet. So I don't want to fuel any scaremongering and say, oh, man, now you need to really be concerned about anti-nutrients. But what I'm trying to get at is a general rejection of the premise that you take a vegan diet and make it healthier by saying well, I'm not going to cook or process anything. I, I, I actually reject that um, that particular um, assumption or claim. And in fact, I would argue that if anything, uh, there are some foods in a vegan diet that you would prefer to uh, to have some degree of cooking or processing for the reasons that I just listed. So uh, there are going to be a lot of folks who say, yeah, raw vegan diet, New New Year's resolution, adopt this diet. It's pretty extreme, but it's like, you know, healthy, cranked up to 11. Uh I don't really see much of a benefit with the raw element of that vegan diet. And in many cases, it, it could actually be viewed as a slight detriment. Nothing to panic about, but but probably not, uh, not a sacrifice that's worth making, in my opinion. Uh, speaking of things you're going to hear about uh, pertaining to, you know, vegetable-based diets, uh, you know, diets that are very, very plant-based, things you're going to hear around the new year— uh, Every year, you're going to see a lot of folks talking about uh, juice cleanses or really just cleanses or detoxes of any type. And so I know a lot of people in the Stronger by Science audience are not thinking about that uh, when the new year comes. Uh, But nonetheless, I I do feel, you know, there's going to be so many people talking about it in a positive way. I do think there is some benefit of people kind of balancing that out by making content that says, hey... Let's go ahead and address that um, and kind of bring things, bring some of those claims back down to earth a little bit. Uh, you know, we, we need a, a little bit of some opposing viewpoints that are being put out uh, around this time of year. So, as many of you are, are probably already aware of, there's really no science to support these various uh, juice cleanses or, or detoxes or detox teas could kind of fall under this umbrella. Uh, the human body has very robust detoxification mechanisms, uh, and those only need support if you are really dealing with a a diagnosed medical condition that re- that would require treatment from an informed medical professional if you're if you're having issues with detoxing your body, your solution is not in a new box of tea it's not in a juice cleanse it, it's by going and, and consulting with a qualified medical professional so, Um, generally speaking, these juice cleanses, these detoxes, these teas that, that claim to detox, um, they're generally just not doing much for you. Now, if you're just like having a juice beverage on top of your normal diet, uh, whatever, no big deal, you know, probably getting some extra vitamins and minerals in the mix. Uh, who cares, right? Not doing much, but, not a big deal, but if you are replacing your food intake with a really aggressive juice cleanse or detox program, uh, th- that's a bad idea, you know, So you don't want to be doing anything extreme that involves any of these interventions. I mean, if it's just like, uh you know, hey, have this juice in the morning and then you know, combine it with a reasonably healthy diet, no big deal. Um, but but you know, there is potential for some harm if you are, uh, getting rid of all those criteria that we talked about with a healthy dietary pattern. And instead you're drinking some, some juice or some tea. Uh, so you definitely don't want to do that. Um, you know, in many cases, when we, when we talk about these detox and these cleanse products, um, some of them are just a fruit juice or a vegetable juice. And it's like, whatever, some vitamins and minerals that that's fine. Some of them actually have ingredients that, uh, that produce a laxative effect, um, and if that's the case, you're just giving yourself a stomach ache for no reason. Um, and, and I don't want to sound like a like a smart ass, but th- that is what it is. Uh, and I think these, um, these products, they often want to induce that laxative effect so that um, it kind of amplifies the placebo effect where you say, yeah, I must be detoxing because boy, am I feeling something. Uh, and, you know, I not to get too graphic, but, you know, people can convince themselves there's a lot of toxins leaving my body in a really unpleasant way because of this, this laxative effect. So, um, yeah, I, I'm generally not an advocate for just giving yourself GI distress. And and so for that reason, a lot of these products, I say, yeah, just don't, don't go anywhere near that. So I cannot think of a good reason to seek out uh, a juice cleanse program or a detox product of any type. Um, but, uh, you know, if if you want to have some vegetable juice on top of a healthy diet, go for it. But but it doesn't have to be some kind of expensive cleanse product. There are all sorts of uh, vegetable and fruit-based juice products that could easily be incorporated with a very healthy dietary pattern. So I don't really see any sit- situation where you would want to do any of this. Um, the only reason I bring up the vitamins and minerals is because I said, you know, I, I want to try to at least highlight any tiny glimmer of a positive attribute of any of these uh, types of interventions. But just to be super clear, juice cleanses, juice detox, detox teas, I wouldn't go near them. I can't think of a good reason to do it. If you want to have some vegetable or fruit juice within your diet, just work it into a more conventional dietary pattern. Uh, That brings me to another thing I'll briefly address. Um, I mentioned sometimes these juice cleanse uh, interventions are framed as Essentially displacing your entire diet and just working in a single beverage that makes up the entirety of your nutrition, and that brings me to the topic of really any single food diet. So, like, I've seen things on the internet about like a grapefruit diet or a cabbage soup diet, just really any single food diet, Uh, and you could even lump in you know extreme applications of the carnivore diet, where it seems like some people are advocating to just eat beef, like just eat the muscle of cows. Any single food diet uh, is going to be a bad idea. There are many very good foods out there, but there is not a single perfect human-sustaining food. Uh, The closest thing you're going to see to that in the literature is going to be a well-formulated meal replacement beverage. And those are sometimes used in scientific interventions and randomized controlled trials. I mentioned earlier in this episode, you can find many studies where researchers will say, we are going to give you an 800 or 1,000 or 1,200 calorie diet that is going to be only made of this specific meal replacement beverage. Drink three of them a day, 800 calories, that's your diet for the next 12 weeks. So, there are some products that aim to do that, uh, but usually that's going to take place in the context of a medically supervised short-term scenario. So, like I said, it'll be a 12-week intervention where you're under, you know, constant. You're constantly in contact with the research staff, which has a trained medical professional who is looking out for any unfavorable side effects of such an extreme intervention. So, any single food-based diet, uh, whether it's a food or a beverage, I would categorically uh, reject outside of some of those medically supervised scenarios. You might find a situation where under medical supervision, you are given a diet that is either fully or heavily dependent on meal replacement beverages. But like I said, um, and, and for those people, those meal replacement beverages are, are, are a, a miracle. I mean, they're, they're really, really important. Um, you know, I, th- there are some instances where, especially if you look uh, in the short-term recovery period from things like bariatric surgery, Uh, where the overall capacity of the stomach is very limited, and it, it, you know, there are some considerations pertaining to nutrient absorption. You know, some of these single meal replacement based interventions uh, can be, you know, really important and helpful medical interventions for people who need them. Um, You know, sometimes it's very difficult to navigate that acute period recovering a I, I was part of a study where, where we were, you know, doing an intervention pertaining to that kind of early phase recovery from bariatric surgery. Uh, it's immensely challenging to say, okay, we've got these vitamin absorption considerations that are new. We've got very limited stomach capacity. How do we actually deliver the nutrients that are necessary um, so that they can be absorbed and, and support all the nutritional needs of the patient? while also making sure that, that it's not a volume of, of liquid that is just completely untenable. Um, you know, stomach capacity is so limited, it can be very difficult to even get down a few meal replacement shakes a day. Uh, and there, there's actually a kind of best practices that list out the volume of food and beverage and the type of food of beverage that you reintroduce Uh, in phases after bariatric surgery so i know for a lot of people that's going to be extraneous information that's not pertinent to them Um, but like i said i want to highlight some positive attributes of things that i still generally don't advise so there are some medical applications where we might say for a short period of time we are going to do an intervention that's based on meal replacement beverages as kind of a single food diet Uh, but in terms of developing a sustainable health-compatible overall dietary pattern, I would strongly encourage people to avoid any single food diets outside of a recommendation from a medical, a qualified medical professional. As the first and only fitness podcast with a steadfast commitment to traditional family values, we know that protecting families is important. Right you are, Eric. But I will note, there are some things that are even more important than protecting traditional family values and the moral fabric of our society. That's right, Greg. It's important to protect families, but it's even more important to protect corporate entities. That's why I joined the advisory board for the Sports Nutrition Association, along with trusted fitness pros like Danny Lennon and distrusted arch nemeses like Eric Helms. The Sports Nutrition Association is the home of sports nutrition. They are dedicated to ensuring the sustainable prosperity of the sports nutrition profession, and they offer a unique pathway to robust insurance coverage for your sports nutrition business. Simply put, it's the best way to protect the corporate entities that are closest to your heart. And I should note, if you're an individual sole proprietor uh, providing sports nutrition services, and not a corporate entity, the Sports Nutrition Association can help you out as well. That is correct. All insurance plans are handled individually on a case-by-case basis, regardless of how your sports nutrition business is structured. But even if you don't want insurance coverage, SNA membership comes with a bunch of other perks and advantages. The Sports Nutrition Association is the only global professional sports body that has a defined standard, For sports nutrition scope of practice for its members this ensures that members maintain high standards in their practice so that the public can always trust in the quality associated with the services of an accredited sports nutritionist through the sports nutrition association if you already meet their minimum education requirements you can become an accredited sports nutritionist today Uh, if you don't meet those education requirements yet you can enroll in the certificate program in applied sports nutrition that allows you to become a provisionally accredited member upon completion. To learn more about the Sports Nutrition Association, head over to www.sportsnutritionassociation.com today. Today's episode is sponsored by the Sports Nutrition Association and Stronger by Science LLC sincerely appreciates their support so we've talked a little bit about some of these uh plant-based diets uh, some of these lower fat diets and now i want to talk about another category of diets that you're probably going to hear about a lot uh, as we approach you know new year's resolution season Uh, so that's going to be kind of a a category of diet advice that falls under the umbrella of fasting so you're going to be hearing a lot about time-restricted feeding intermittent fasting and then extended fasting windows where people will say oh yeah you should be doing a 24 48 72 or 72 hour fast where all you have is water so i want to talk a little bit about these different um meal timing strategies and and fasting strategies so the first one the least uh intense application of these fasting strategies would be time restricted feeding um Now, you may hear what I'm about to describe and say, oh, that's intermittent fasting. But there's actually, unfortunately, a bit of a gap in the nomenclature uh, when we compare the fitness industry to the academic research on the topic. So if you are eating every day, then you're not doing what most—well, that's too much of an oversimplification. I'll put it this way. Intermittent fasting within the fitness industry got really popular— as basically just having a short feeding window every day. So basically you have a four or six or eight hour period of time every day where you eat, and then the rest of the day you are not eating, you are fasting. A lot of folks in the fitness industry call that intermittent fasting, but that's actually based on the research more compatible with a term that we call time-restricted feeding. So you're eating on a daily basis, you're eating pretty similar amounts of food on a daily basis, but you're constraining it into a limited time window where you consume all your calories for the day and this could take um frankly a very simple uh a a very simple form so there is some research on the concept of just skipping breakfast and uh to some extent you could kind of let that fall under the umbrella of time restricted feeding because in most interventions where they tell people to skip breakfast, the rest of their dietary pattern stays pretty consistent. They're having lunch and dinner at the same time, uh, generally speaking. So what you're doing is you're taking a broader feeding window—breakfast, lunch, and dinner—and you're condensing that into a shorter feeding window, which is just lunch and dinner. Um, so, so I, I think that the breakfast skipping literature can be used to help us form inferences about time-restricted feeding, but. The most common application of time-restricted feeding, especially in the fitness world, is what we call uh, 16-8 time-restricted feeding. And what that means is every day you've got a 16-hour window where you're fasting and an 8-hour window where you're feeding. So all of your calories might be consumed, for example, between noon and 8 p.m., right? So outside of those hours, no calories at all. You can still drink water and things like that. But within 12 you know 12 noon to 8 p.m that's where you're eating all your calories and you can adjust that window wherever you want you can start that eight hour window at night eight at nine am if you'd like or 7 a.m and there is some research to indicate that there might be just the slightest advantages associated with moving a restricted feeding window earlier in the day rather than later in the day don't want to get too into the details on that because it's a, a a pretty nuanced research subject but Generally speaking, time-restricted feeding, the most common application is an eight-hour feeding window, and you can put it wherever you want throughout the day. Another common one is 24, so 20 hours fasting, four hours feeding. Same exact thing, but your feeding window, instead of being eight hours, is only going to be four. Now, with time-restricted feeding, uh, the 16:8 version, really not bad at all. And to be frank, even the, you know, the 24 version, uh, you know, not, not that bad in terms of dietary approaches. What you'll find is that when, you, when a lot of people condense their feeding window, they tend to eat fewer calories overall because it's just kind of rather than just kind of grazing on food throughout the day, if you only have a four-hour feeding window, you can imagine, for example, an extreme application. If you were only eating one meal a day uh, and you normally had a 3,000-calorie diet, uh, when you're eating, you know, your normal eating schedule. If someone said, okay, from now on, just eat one meal a day. It's going to be really hard to eat those 3000 calories at a single meal, unless you're really trying to, you know, if you're making it like a really nutrient dense milkshake, just to try to get the calories in, you might be able to get it done. Uh, but generally speaking, if you tell people, Hey, don't change your food intake that much, but just, just have fewer meals, kind of squeeze them into this tighter feeding window. Most of the time, people are going to report that they start consuming fewer calories. As a result of that, they start losing some weight. They start losing some fat mass, and they really don't feel super hungry throughout the day because they kind of forget about eating during the fasting period. Then they do their feeding period. It's this huge influx of calories. I mean, it's it's a really massive meal if you're having all your daily calories uh, in you know one or two meals in a short feeding window. Uh, so it, it ends up being a very feasible strategy for passively reducing calorie intake. Now, when you look at studies where calorie intake is very closely matched because the researchers insist upon it, uh, then what you find is outcomes are pretty similar uh, for most you know things that stronger by science folks would be interested in. You know, most health and fitness related and performance related outcomes tend to be, be pretty similar when both groups are eating the same total amount of calories and the same macronutrients um but what you'll find is when you talk to the people who are in the time restricted feeding group they say man i could barely get those calories in and people in the the more normal typical dietary pattern would say yeah that was fine i i wasn't really full i wasn't really overly filled by those meals so it really comes down to hunger and satiety management now i will say um when we talk about protein timing. There is pretty good research to indicate that when possible, if your main goal is to support hypertrophy, uh, muscle growth, increases in strength and performance, ideally you would like to have probably at least three meals spread throughout the day with at least a couple of hours between those meals. Uh, So I, I would suggest that if you are really prioritizing muscle growth and you want to fully optimize muscle growth. You probably don't want a feeding window that is much shorter than eight hours, because that allows you to have a high-protein meal at the beginning, the middle, and the end of that eight-hour feeding window. And you should be able to essentially optimize your gains within that feeding uh, schedule. Uh, if you're not optimizing, you're getting very, very close. Um, there, there are you know randomized controlled trials where people uh, Grant Tinsley has done some really phenomenal work in this area. I uh, couldn't have more respect uh, for a researcher than the respect I have for Grant Tinsley. His his work really is phenomenal, and this is one of his uh, focal areas. We we've talked about his work in the areas of body composition and, and uh, you know metabolic rate prediction, metabolic rate assessment, but time restricted feeding is really his sweet spot. And uh, his work has indicated if we look at people on a typical feeding pattern, we compare it to people who are doing an eight hour time restricted feeding window. Uh, both both approaches have similar effects when it comes to muscle growth and strength increases. So, uh, sixteen eight seems to be great. Uh, the more you condense that, and you get into maybe a four hour feeding window where you only have two uh, protein feeding opportunities, or if you even get even closer down to one meal a day, you start to limit the likelihood that you are fully optimizing your progress in terms of muscle growth. You can still make great gains. Don't get me wrong. You can still make excellent progress but you are probably not in a position where you're well suited to optimize your progress in terms of hypertrophy Um, now i am going to link in the show notes a research spotlight that i did a while back uh, about time restricted feeding uh, and, and how you can optimize time restricted feeding if you are really adamant about trying to really prioritize gains in muscle and strength now Getting away from time restricted feeding, uh, oh, one thing I do want to mention I, since I brought up breakfast skipping, uh, some people ask about that a lot. It comes up around New Year's. You know, people have heard that breakfast is the most important meal of the day, and you really, really shouldn't skip it. I will say, if if you look at um, the majority of the breakfast skipping literature, where they they do these really hands off interventions, they say, "Hey, you don't eat breakfast." You. Keep doing your thing. <laughs> That's kind of the the extent of, of the intervention because they want it to be very ecologically valid. They want to know what happens when all you do is tell someone, don't eat breakfast. And usually what they find is calorie intake at lunch and dinner and snacks throughout the day does go up a little bit uh, when people skip breakfast, but it doesn't go up enough to actually match the calories that they would have eaten at breakfast. So what you generally find in the literature is that when you tell someone to skip breakfast, a lot like when you tell someone to have an eight-hour feeding window, the net impact on calorie intake tends to be a small reduction uh, because people are just kind of forcing more calories into those other, other meals, they're feeling more full at those other meals, and their total calorie intake for the whole day tends to go down a little bit. So I just wanted to address that because there's going to be a lot of new year's content about whether breakfast is super important or whether or not you should skip it. Uh, you can skip it and it's, it's not going, sometimes people will suggest that if you skip breakfast, you're just going to be starving all day and you're going to overeat like crazy and end up over consuming calories. The literature generally does not support that, um, that idea. So breakfast skipping eight hour feeding windows, both totally viable, not critical, but viable. Uh, Now moving on to intermittent fasting. Intermittent fasting in the academic literature is not the same as time-restricted feeding. Usually with intermittent fasting, you're going to have certain days of the week where for the whole day, you are either totally fasting and and only consuming fluids, you know, beverages uh, that are non-caloric, or you have certain days of the week where you have a massive reduction in your energy intake. So like, There might be a couple days a week where you say, those are my fasting days, and even if I'm not totally fasting, I'm dropping my calories to like 25% of what they would normally be, for example. Um, So there are different approaches you can take when it comes to intermittent fasting. One would be alternate day fasting, and again, when I say fasting days, it could be a true fast with no calories, or it could just be a massive reduction in calorie intake for a specified day. But you you could do alternate day fasting, where every other day it's normal calorie normal calorie day with you know a typical calorie intake for you, and then a fasting day, typical calorie day, then fasting day. You're just alternating back and forth. Uh, another popular approach is what they call the five two diet, where you are picking two days a week to be your fasting days, and the other five days you try to maintain your typical calorie intake. So you're not trying to Ramp up your calories on the five days to kind of offset the two fasting days. What you're trying to do is saying, I want to introduce a calorie deficit, but I don't want to feel like it's super hard every single day of the week. So I'll, I'll keep doing my normal stuff for five days. And then those two fasting days are where I'm really going to make my progress in terms of establishing a weekly caloric deficit. Now, generally speaking, um, these types of intermittent fasting strategies seem to be very viable. Um, they, they do seem to help some folks reduce their calorie con- calorie intake across the week on average. And so it is a viable weight loss strategy. Uh, when we control for total weekly calorie intake, they don't seem to be better or worse for just total weight loss. Uh, but I will say two things. First of all, uh, there are some concerns uh, if if you're working with someone or if you are someone who is predisposed to... Uh, what we might call uh disordered eating patterns. If you are kind of susceptible to eating disorder pathologies, uh, if you have potentially some psychological relationships to your food intake that could be viewed as as somewhat um, somewhat concerning or problematic, you might not want to jump into a dietary pattern that involves cyclical restriction of calories it could theoretically lend itself to a situation where you are now easing into the concept of having really high calorie days and then kind of purging and have you know really, really aggressive restriction. And you don't want to get into that swinging back and forth of really high calorie intakes on your feeding days, excessive restriction on your fasting days. It could lead you down a road that is not really optimized for your um, kind of psychological state as it pertains to food intake. So if you sense that you have high uh, predisposition to disordered eating patterns, I would not recommend venturing into intermittent fasting without medical supervision and working with a qualified uh, professional, whether that's a, a registered dietitian. psychologist uh, or counselor who is really uh, focused on nutritional uh, concepts with their psychological services, you'd want to make sure that you venture into that very lightly if you do it at all. You'd want to make sure that you've got someone on your team there who can help you keep an eye out for some of those problematic patterns. The second thing I would mention is there is evidence suggesting that These patterns might not be best for optimizing muscle mass or lean body mass. Like I mentioned, we generally want to spread our protein in at least three-ish feedings throughout the day. And of course, if you're having full fasting days, it's going to be difficult to be doing the things we need to do to support muscle growth nutritionally during those fasting days. And so it doesn't mean you can't make any progress if you're doing intermittent fasting, but it does mean... It's going to be more challenging to optimize muscle gain when you have, you know, every other day or two days a week where you're really not able to support the energy demand and the protein demands that would support optimizing muscle growth. So again, I'm going to link a research spotlight that, that addresses uh, 5-2 intermittent fasting and some other intermittent fasting strategies and how they relate to supporting muscle growth. So intermittent fasting, just to kind of wrap that up. Uh, it is a viable approach that seems to help some folks lose weight, probably not the best possible approach for maintaining or building muscle, uh, and if you feel like you have susceptibility to disordered eating patterns, it's probably not a road that you want to go down without uh, you know, having someone in your corner who is um, clinically trained to look out for some of the signs and symptoms of problematic uh, approaches to eating. Now, the final thing I want to mention uh, when it comes to fasting is there are a lot of folks these days who are talking about doing really prolonged fasting periods, not as part of an intermittent fasting strategy, but just for specific health benefits that they link to prolonged fasting. So they're not saying, hey, you should do these fasting days because it'll help you kind of establish a caloric deficit. They're saying, you need to do these fasting periods because fasting itself has huge health benefits, and they're usually linking it to a process called autophagy. Now, autophagy is kind of a natural process where, um, you know, our cells remove unnecessary or dysfunctional components. It's, it's kind of, we can think of it as a process of recycling cellular components that are either damaged or unnecessary, or you know, you get the idea. It's the body kind of going through and doing a tune-up and getting rid of some of the uh, the stuff that that can be uh, that can be discarded or recycled. Uh, so initially, um, if you look at how autophagy was discussed over the years, it was initially seen as something that occurs during starvation, uh, and it was, and of course, it does occur during starvation, and it was seen as a means of kind of efficiently recycling. Uh, important things that we need to survive in the context of starvation. But now it's clear that that it is kind of an ongoing process that is just kind of part of homeostasis, of just managing cells to, to keep them functioning their best. So uh, I'm certainly not suggesting that autophagy is not an important cellular thing or, or cellular process. However, there are a lot of folks who say, listen, autophagy is important. It it creates, you know, it's an important process for cells to kind of do their housekeeping and their recycling of damaged components. Um, and so in order to make autophagy happen, you have to do these really complicated or really arduous fasting protocols that sometimes are, are quite long in duration. Now, based on the literature I've seen, uh, these, uh, fasting protocols are very overhyped and really not supported by good science uh again i'm not saying that autophagy is not important but when i look at the evidence uh the most pertinent evidence uh, that's relevant to human beings and i look at what do you need to do to facilitate autophagy um, and essentially maximize the theoretical benefits of autophagy occurring when I look at what you would need to do to do that, I think there are a few things you could point to. First of all, maintaining a, a BMI or a level of adiposity or a body fat percentage that is combat- compatible with good long-term cardiometabolic health. That seems to be one thing that would help. Uh, being physically active, doing structured exercise on a regular basis, and avoiding overnutrition. So avoiding just eating way more than you need uh, in terms of energy content, those things seem to be sufficient for essentially maximizing the theoretical benefit of autophagy occurring. Um, you know, So when someone is in a caloric deficit and they're losing fat mass and getting down to a BMI that might be more compatible with optimizing their cardiometabolic health and long-term risk, uh, when they're doing that, autophagy will be ramped up Uh, And there's really no reason to complicate that by doing these excessively arduous fasting protocols. Um, And and so these fasting protocols, do they uh, upregulate autophagy? Uh, Sure, they they probably do. Um, But but is there actually going to be a benefit of that above and beyond the typical autophagy that we see by doing those basic things I mentioned previously? Uh, Probably not. And could there be some... uh, Uh, some side effects and and some adverse events that occur from really arduous fasting protocols without medical supervision? uh, My answer would be yes. Um, I I would never nudge someone toward a fasting protocol that was particularly aggressive or ambitious in the absence of medical supervision. Um, So generally speaking, if you're thinking about doing some kind of long fasting protocol for health benefits, I would discourage you from doing that because of the risk for adverse events And because of the, it goes back to the thing I've been saying a lot over this two-part series, which is, um, you know, if we're making a sacrifice and it's really challenging, we need to make sure we're really getting something for it. We don't want to be doing these challenging sacrifices that reduce sustainability, reduce feasibility, reduce quality of life. We don't want to be doing these things if we're not actually getting serious payoff from these sacrifices. So now I want to move on here and just talk about, well, we, we've we talked about different diets and some of their shortcomings, but what are some good dietary patterns that, that serve as a good starting point? So like I said, a good diet, what we're trying to do is basically check many of the boxes in the, those two sets of healthy diet indicator criteria. So we, we talked about all those different criteria that go into a generally healthy dietary pattern we want to check a lot of those boxes to the extent that we can. Now, we can do that with, you know, like I said, just broadly speaking, a low-carb diet, a low-fat diet. Those are both totally viable options, totally feasible, but we want to avoid the really restrictive versions of them that start to pull us away from some of those healthy diet indicator criteria. Now, if someone were to ask me, what are some good starting points in terms of named diets? Like, if someone was like, "Hey," I'm looking at this kind of list of 10 popular diets. Which one should I start with? If I really want to choose a named diet and I don't want to go through the work of looking at the healthy diet indicator criteria and kind of piecing it together uh, bit by bit. One place I would start would be the Mediterranean diet. Um, and, And this is a diet that was inspired by the eating habits of people who live in the Mediterranean region. Uh, initially it drew largely on the cuisines of greece italy france and spain Uh, recently it's incorporated some other mediterranean cuisines uh, turkey lebanon syria north africa portugal so i know a lot of people criticize the mediterranean diet in the way it's been popularized because it 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 has been a bit biased in, in saying the Mediterranean diet pertains to like these one or two countries in the Mediterranean region. And sometimes it is a bit uh, exclusionary when it comes to see these other cuisines that are very much in the Mediterranean region. So I do want to acknowledge that, that that is a very valid criticism of the way the Mediterranean diet has been popularized. But when I talk about the Mediterranean diet, I, I really talk about it because of the medical literature That seems to consistently show that it's linked with some pretty positive outcomes, uh, both in uh, prospective cohort trials and randomized controlled trials. And when we look at the basic elements of a Mediterranean diet, it it usually features uh, a lot of consumption of unprocessed cereals, uh, legumes, olive oil, fruits, vegetables, and then moderate consumption of things like fish, dairy, and meat products. Um, and, and what's really interesting about the Mediterranean diet, you know, I mentioned previously the healthy diet indicator criteria. We we do not want to treat it as a list that we have to check every single box all the time. And the reason I bring that up is with a Mediterranean diet, when you look at the trials that do it, you'll often see that fat intake can get up to thirty-five, even forty percent of total calories. And the healthy diet indicator criteria say, well, generally you might want to keep fat to less than thirty. So the Mediterranean diet does violate one element of those healthy diet indicator criteria. Nonetheless, as an overall dietary pattern, it checks many of the boxes and it still does a really nice job when it's actually put to the test in some of the longitudinal trials that investigate it. So Mediterranean diet, you don't have to follow every single rule and guideline, but it does offer a good starting point when you're trying to put together Uh, a healthy dietary pattern and you don't want to just totally start from scratch uh one myth i want to address when it comes to the mediterranean diet like i said it is uh typically a pretty plant forward diet uh not vegetarian by any means but you know a lot of plant foods and there are a lot of vegetable oils that find their way into it now one of the most common vegetable oils in the mediterranean diet is olive oil and olive oil usually um people don't beat up on olive oil too much. It tends to be associated with a lot of positive outcomes. But there is a myth that's getting more and more popular that vegetable oils, broadly speaking, are very bad for you. Um, And people are generally focusing on linoleic acid, which is the main omega-6 polyunsaturated fatty acid that is found in a variety of vegetable oils. Now, Linoleic acid is not found in the same amount in all vegetable oils. And so people mostly focus on seed oils as being uh, really, um, as being oils that have high concentrations of linoleic acid. So people are saying, hey, stay away from these seed oils. They're toxic, they're terrible for you. The people who are really outspoken about seed oils really leave olive oil alone, generally speaking, uh, which is pertinent to the Mediterranean diet mostly because olive oil compared to other vegetable oils doesn't really have a ton of linoleic acid. Um, I'm going to link to an article that uh, really pushes back against a lot of this panic that's happening about seed oils and other vegetable oils. Uh, Generally speaking, the claim that's going on here is that vegetable oils and specifically seed oils uh, contain linoleic acid, which increases the susceptibility of LDL cholesterol to oxidize, and theoretically, you know, they're making the argument that this increases risk of cardiovascular disease. And of course, people have branched out and gone into all sorts of tangents about all the, the various ways that they think uh, seed oils are terrible for you. Uh, and along the, those same lines, they say, you know what, what is way better would be saturated fat. So instead of having these uh, plant-based vegetable oils, you should be eating a lot of fatty meat. Uh, that, that's kind of how the, the arguments tend to go um I don't want to get too deep into the weeds on this particular set of arguments like I said I'm going to link to an article by Nick Hebert that um that goes into a lot of these arguments one by one and I think very soundly uh, uh provides compelling evidence to uh to really really debunk a lot of those concepts uh my my general take is when you look at the literature on omega-6 fatty acids and linoleic acid in general, uh, when you look at you know this broader, broader evidence of vegetable oils, omega-6 polyunsaturated fatty acids, linoleic acid specifically, when you start to work your way up the hierarchy of evidence and you get away from the stuff that's happening in petri dishes and cell cultures, you start working into observationally, when we look at people who eat a lot of this stuff, Does it look like they're regretting it? The answer is no. When we go into prospective cohort uh, studies and we say, when we actually have people eat more of this, do we see deleterious outcomes? The answer is broadly no. Uh, And in fact, there are studies indicating some pretty notable benefits when you replace saturated fatty acids with polyunsaturated fatty acids in the diet. So when you look at the highest quality evidence with the most... uh, relevance and generalizability, you start to see that a lot of these arguments about vegetable oils being bad, they they really do start to, frankly, crash and burn. They really break down uh, quite quickly. Um, you will see some, some papers out there saying, you know, omega-6 polyunsaturated fatty acids. In the Western diet, we tend to eat a lot of those, and we don't eat enough omega-3 uh, polyunsaturated fatty acids. And so people talk a lot, of, a lot about this ratio of omega-6 to omega-3 and how we want to get that ratio lower so that there's less omega-6, more omega-3. When I dig into that literature, my assessment is that the only issue with high omega-6 and low omega-3 is the fact that there's just low omega-3. And usually the way you would want to intervene there is by simply making sure you're getting plenty of omega-3 fatty acids in your diet. They are essential you do need them, so you want to make sure you're getting plenty of those. Um, you know, so you could just take a simplistic approach and say, "Hey, I'm going to eat plenty of nuts and seeds, maybe some fatty fish. And I should be getting plenty of omega threes into my diet." If you really want to fully optimize omega three intake, you might consider specifically seeking out marine sources. So people talk a lot about fish oil, uh, specifically EPA and DHA. It's important to note, you can also get EPA and DHA, which we typically call fish oil. You could also get that from algae. So some people, like vegans, like me, uh, supplement with algae oil instead of fish oil. Um, so EPA and DHA uh, do tend to have some pretty positive effects in the body. You want to make sure you're getting some of them if you can. Uh, usually, you know, when you look at the research, people will say getting at least 0.3 to 0.5 grams a day of combined EPA and DHA appears to be a positive thing for a whole bunch of different uh, health and wellness outcomes. Still unclear if there's any benefit of going higher than that. Um, If you look at the literature, some people or some studies will involve supplementing with, uh, instead of 0.3 to 0.5, they might go up to one, maybe even two grams a day of combined EPA and DHA. For a healthy person, I don't think there's really reason to go beyond that. Uh, one to two grams per day might even be overkill. You will see some studies where they go really high dose and they're talking like six or eight grams a day of fish oil. Uh, from my perspective, that seems to be overkill and I really don't see that as being a necessary thing. Uh, so uh, I just wanted to kind of address that myth because it's probably going to be on the top 10 list of the big myths that are floating around around New Year's nutrition content. So seed oils, vegetable oils, really no reason to be worried. Um, And yeah, so the Mediterranean diet is is a good starting point if you're looking for a healthy dietary pattern. Another one that comes to mind is the DASH diet, and DASH stands for Dietary Approaches to Stop Hypertension. Uh, So it was developed to prevent and control hypertension, but when you look at it, it is just broadly a pretty solid overall dietary pattern. So it's rich in fruits, vegetables, whole grains, low-fat dairy foods. Uh, it, it includes meat, fish, poultry, nuts, and beans, um, but but they aren't really at the forefront of the diet. They're kind of hanging out in the background, and it, it generally involves limiting uh, sugar-sweetened foods and beverages and keeping red meat and added fats to a minimum. So typically, when you look at the diet, you're going to see it's going to be somewhere in the ballpark of about 20% of calories coming from fat uh, when researchers try to really dial it in and do it by the book. Um so one of the things that is interesting about the DASH diet is it does check a lot of those boxes of the healthy diet indicator criteria. Uh, it is a pretty well-rounded approach. There are some elements that are more restrictive than necessary. Um, you know, so if you dig into the details about like potassium and sodium, there might be some restrictions that aren't really necessary if you don't have elevated blood pressure. Uh, so there are some, some guidelines in there that uh, might be a little bit extraneous or excessive, but it's generally a pretty flexible dietary pattern that, like I said, checks a lot of the boxes that we're going for here. So I think the DASH diet is a really excellent starting point in terms of a healthy diet pattern. Uh, one of the things that's worth noting is if you look at the U.S. dietary guidelines from 2015 to 2020, uh, they, they basically mentioned three healthy diets that are recommended, uh, broadly speaking. The Mediterranean diet, the dash diet and then also a vegetarian diet so i when we talk about these uh, kind of basic diets to adopt f- for a healthy dietary pattern i do want to also in line with that you know i mentioned mediterranean i mentioned dash i don't want to be biased but the third diet that tends to be mentioned is just a generally plant-based vegetarian diet these like i said previously they tend to do quite well in the literature. Uh, so I've already talked about some of the positive attributes. I've talked about some of the nutrients of concern, things that you want to keep an eye on with a plant-based diet. But I just want to reiterate here, the reason that I suspect that, that this was included as a healthy dietary pattern is because most people, when they transition to a plant-based diet, they will increase their intake of, uh, you know, uh, high fiber grain products, um, uh, vegetables fruits things of that nature so for a lot of people there is a net benefit when it comes to the overall change in dietary pattern and they will be reducing things like processed meats really high intakes of fatty red meats things like that so a lot of people will have a net improvement in their dietary pattern when they say you know what i'm going to try a vegetarian diet but you know some people don't necessarily do that right so some people will say okay when I adopt a vegetarian diet, I'm not thinking, how am I going to incorporate all these nutritious plant-based foods? They're thinking, okay, no more meat, and that's it. So, I mean, you know, you could just have Oreos and almond milk all day and say, yeah, I'm a vegetarian, it's great. It's not really going to be a healthy dietary pattern. And some people, uh, they will kind of gravitate toward refined, uh, very snackable grain products, uh, really carb-heavy diets when they switch to a vegetarian diet, and actually they find that their cardiometabolic health uh, gets worse rather than better uh, in the short term i don't I don't want to be uh I, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush or cause any kind of unwarranted concern about plant-based diets but a plant-based diet is so broad that you know it's important to acknowledge some people will have a a, a net improvement in their dietary pattern, but some people will have a net um, downgrade uh, in their dietary pattern when they just say i'm going to adopt a vegetarian diet. Uh, so it, it is important to keep that in mind. And one other thing I do want to mention, uh, I want to make sure I'm, I'm going out of my way to correct for any bias that that might be brewing within me. So I am on a vegan diet, okay? So obviously, I think highly <laughs> of plant-based diets, um, but it's important to recognize I, I made that decision for reasons unrelated to nutrition. I think that plant-based diets and even vegan diets are viable alternatives to omnivorous diets But that doesn't mean that they are necessarily more healthy. And and what I mean by that is, if I look at someone who is is eating, you know, poultry and fish as part of their diet, and they say, Eric, do I need to stop eating chicken breast and salmon in order to be optimally healthy? My answer would categorically be no. If if we look at the literature on, on, you know, some of these animal-based products, there's no reason for us to say that you should, for health reasons, remove them from your diet. Uh, or at least I don't find the evidence to be compelling. So, if two people come to me, and one one person says I'm on a totally vegan diet, the other person says I'm in an om, on on I'm on an omnivorous diet. And that's hard to say, which which features a lot of poultry, you know, a lot of fish, a little bit of uh, of lean red meat here and there. If someone were to ask me which of those two people has the healthier diet, I genuinely have no idea. <laughs> I'd, I'd have to really look at the overall dietary pattern and say that vegan diet what does it look like that omnivorous diet in totality what does it look like i know they're eating some poultry and fish a little bit of red meat here and there but just from saying you know one diet is vegetarian the other is omnivorous i can't really say that one's better than the other and if someone is eating uh you know a, a dash diet or they're they're eating a mediterranean diet and they're going by the book and they come to me and say, hey, Eric, do I need to remove all the poultry from my diet to make this healthier? I'd say, no. And, and if they say, if I remove the poultry, will I become healthier, the poultry and the fish, for example, I'd say, I, I don't really think so. Uh, you know, so it's important to recognize that plant-based diets are a great alternative, but it's not fair to say that the best healthiest diet is one that contains no animal products. That would not be uh, an evidence-based statement. It would not be in line with the current scientific evidence. So uh, in summary, if you are an omnivore and you have a preference for higher fat intake, uh, you just like the food options, you like how it makes you feel, I would say a Mediterranean diet is a great uh, starting point for a dietary pattern. If you're an omnivore and you have more of a preference for higher carbs and lower fat, I would say the DASH diet would be a great starting point. And then, of course, if you're not an omnivore, if you're a vegetarian— Then you would want to adopt, uh, of course, a plant based eating pattern. But in terms of the other characteristics of the diet, you might want to model some of the other characteristics uh, around the Mediterranean eating pattern or the DASH eating pattern and say, I'm going to do Mediterranean or I'm going to do DASH. And the only difference is I'm going to swap in plant based protein sources instead of animal based. Those are kind of the three starting points where I would say, if you just wanted a simple recommendation of where to begin, that those are places where I, that I'd give a lot of consideration. Uh, of course, as I mentioned frequently, if you're going to make any major changes to your dietary patterns, you should consult with a qualified medical professional rather than some random podcaster. But, um, but, but based on the evidence, th- those are the three areas that seem to be really, really compelling. So uh, I want to wrap up with a summary here. Uh, plant-based diets are totally viable options for lifters and non-lifters alike. And plant-based diets do tend to be associated with plenty of great health outcomes, uh, but it would be inaccurate to suggest that adding animal proteins to a diet makes it categorically worse from a health perspective. Uh, a plant-based diet is not necessarily healthier than a well well-constructed omnivorous diet. Uh, what we know is that humans can thrive and perform well on a wide range of diets with varying amounts of plant-based foods. So there is a ton of flexi- a ton of flexibility. you to pursue a diet that's right for you, your goals, and your preferences. Uh, If you have no idea where to begin, the general patterns associated with the Mediterranean diet and the DASH diet offer very good starting points in terms of a healthy dietary pattern. Uh, When it comes to fasting strategies, the perceived benefits are usually way overblown, and extended fasts can be unfavorable when it comes to muscle mass and performance. Uh, Nonetheless, There are some appetite-related advantages to time-restricted feeding and certain intermittent fasting strategies. Uh, And if you're really focused on optimizing muscle and strength, you can do a time-restricted feeding pattern with an eight-hour feeding window, and that seems to be totally suitable for supporting improvements in body composition and improvements in performance. Uh, Now, finally, before I end this episode, I hope you'll once again afford me the opportunity to make a shameless sales pitch. On behalf of MacroFactor, which is the diet app that Greg and I co developed along with a remarkably talented team of colleagues. As you're considering putting together a dietary pattern and revisiting your diet choices uh, in the new year, uh, I want to uh, reinforce the fact that MacroFactor is very, very flexible and it really can facilitate whatever dietary strategy you're planning to adopt. Uh, first and foremost, It is a remarkably fast and efficient food logger. Uh, It's got a huge verified database of foods, so you don't have to worry about whether there's fake or incorrect entries in the food database. Uh, On top of that database, there's really convenient workflows where you can create custom foods, create custom recipes, and you can even share your custom recipes with others. So whatever your food preferences are, Macrofactor can absolutely handle it. Uh, when it comes to the coach programs, our coach programs within macrofactor, uh, they have many settings and they range all the way from ketogenic diets to low-fat diets that tend to be high in carbohydrate. And with, within each macro program, you have plenty of flexibility. So you can choose, for example, your level of protein intake. There are four different levels that you can choose from. So there's a lot of flexibility there uh, in terms of your macronutrient distribution, your protein level your specific food choices, but if you want even more flexibility, you can branch out from the coached programs and you can get into what we call collaborative mode, um, where you get continued guidance about your daily uh, calorie target, uh, but you have a little more flexibility with custom uh, macro targets from day to day, and you can even do a fully manual program that is 100% customized to your exact liking. Uh, in addition, I should mention in this episode, I talked a little bit about time-restricted feeding, intermittent fasting. The macro factor food log is relatively, relatively unique in the sense that it takes the form of a timeline. So what that means is you can implement a ton of different meal timing strategies within macro factor, which would include various types of time-restricted feeding. In addition, uh, you can actually designate fasting days within macro factor Uh, And so if you are using some type of intermittent fasting strategy, uh, Macrofactor can certainly accommodate that, and the algorithm will still be working perfectly as it should. Uh, So in short, Macrofactor is designed to be your diet sidekick. It provides guidance, support, and analytics that you need, but it doesn't infringe upon your ability to make your own decisions and to chart your own course toward your fitness goals. Uh, So whatever dietary strategies you intend to pursue in the new year, Macrofactor can absolutely provide support. So if you want to learn more about Macrofactor, head over to Macrofactorapp.com. You can learn more about the app, which is available for Android and iPhone devices. Uh, You can also check out some of our content there. Greg and I have been putting in uh, a lot of video, uh, a lot of articles, and even we're starting to do some videos over at Macrofactorapp.com. So if you want even more content from the Stronger by Science universe, uh, be sure to head over and check it out. Um, So that does it for this episode. As always, thanks so much for joining me for another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast. We'll be back soon with another. Thank you for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do, so we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. You can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you wanna join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.